You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Last week, as we opened the Show Before the Show podcast, I yelled, hello and welcome to the Show Before the Show podcast, and I immediately saw Sam reach his hand up and turn down the volume on his laptop as quickly as he could. So I'm trying to be a little more mellow as we come into this week's episode of the Show Before the Show. That was a great passive-aggressive introduction, Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) Do you say something? Did we start the show? I I, I didn't get that. (laughs) That's what I do best. It's my my passive aggressive. You would think I was from Minnesota. Um, Hey, welcome into the latest episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. We have three dudes talking about the sport and the game and the – institution that we love and that is minor league baseball my name is Tyler Mon in New York City on the bridge of the USS MLB Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra guys what's going on how are you we're good yeah things are good this is another one of those weeks I feel like people ask us all the time like how do you run a podcast in the offseason yeah and here we are on February 1st there will be baseball yeah. played this month uh, not just you know the Caribbean series and stuff that's happening in winter ball. There will be actual spring training games, but like what feels like it would be a dry month. There's like lots to talk about this week still. Um, so it, it, you know it's just a nice reminder. But baseball is always happening and it's right around the corner. Yeah, we are content kings. <laughs> now, is that- why isn't that an alternate identity yet? Somebody should be the content king king and just invite a bunch of terrible influencers out to the ballpark for like bad selfie opportunities and things. And once again, we are asking for the show before the show. (laughs) If you want to, you want to have your content kings night. Honor yourselves as the content kings, and then invite the three of us clowns. Uh, well, hey, thanks for joining us on this week's episode. We do have a ton to get to. Uh, you can get in touch with this podcast at milb.com. We got a great conversation uh, with Ryan Foose coming up in a little bit, uh, a, a branding and design guru who uh, recently was the mastermind behind one of the hottest identities, uh, alternate identities in minor league baseball as of right now. Um, and a guy who, as you will learn, has also been behind a lot of your other favorite uh, identities in minor league baseball. Really excited to talk with Ryan coming up later. And uh, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. If you have found us through the site or on social media or wherever else, you can give us a follow on uh, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. And uh, with that, let's dive in on this week's episode of the show before the show. We have another alternate identity to kick things off that is a fascinating one because... It kind of pays tribute inadvertently to a bygone team in minor league baseball, but it's also just paying tribute to its own thing. Uh, The AA affiliate of the Milwaukee Brewers, the Biloxi Shuckers, have come along with a Mardi Gras-themed identity that harkens back to a team that is no longer on the minor league landscape. Uh, I know that's not the point of this, but of course it was the first thing that I would imagine the three of us thought of when we saw it. Ben, give us the, the breakdown on this new Biloxi identity. Yeah, Biloxi Shuckers, uh, Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Uh, they have released the Biloxi King Cakes, King Cakes alternate identity, Biloxi King Cakes. And that is a reference to the King Cake, a very popular dessert that is served and eaten uh, during carnival season. 
and carnival season you know kicks off in january with uh king's day and then runs all the way through mardi gras itself fat tuesday it's about a five-week period so we're in the midst of carnival season right now and biloxi unveiled that identity on january 31st uh, at their home of mgm park in the midst of carnival season because they said hey yes New Orleans might be better known for celebrating, uh, you know, the carnival season and Mardi Gras in particular, but Biloxi has been doing it in an organized form since 1908. It's the oldest uh, Mardi Gras uh, parades and celebrations in the state of Mississippi. They have a long history, you know, with that sort of uh, culture and celebrations as well. And they wanted to do something to explicitly recognize it. So they are the King Cakes. The logos are designed by Brandios. Uh, it features a, wait for it. A kind of intimidating looking, sneering, anthropomorphic king cake. King cake. That's hard to say. King cake. And uh, it's in the Mardi Gras color scheme, uh, coated with yellow, green, and purple frosting. And uh, as I said, it's their very first alternate identity. The team is uh, entering their, uh, well, not 10th season, but they're, they're coming up on 10 years. They played their first season in 2015 after relocating from Huntsville, Alabama, where they were known as the Stars. So they're finally getting into the alternate identity game and just a good way to celebrate uh, their region and their culture. But yes, Tyler, like you mentioned at the top, um, people who pay attention to the world of minor league baseball are going to see King Cakes, especially a logo designed by Brandios and say, hey, that's like the New Orleans baby cakes because it is, I called it in the article I wrote, a spiritual successor. Um, the that's baby a perfect cakes, term for it, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's why they pay me the big bucks. Um, 2017, 2018, and 2019. Those are only three seasons of only uh, baby three cakes. seasons. Yeah, they were the cakes? Zephyrs. Wow. Yeah. New Orleans, New Orleans team in the um, Pacific Coast League. I mean, of course. I mean, where else would New, or New Orleans play but the Pacific Coast League? Um, they were the Zephyrs up through 2016, and then they spent their last three seasons as the Baby Cakes, and then they relocated to Wichita and became the Wind Surge. Uh, but a Baby Cake is, and I, in looking this up when I was writing the King Cakes article yesterday, I, I kind of forgot the specifics. First of all, there's no really such thing as a Baby Cake, but a King Cake has traditionally has a plastic baby figurine right inside of every king cake and then whoever gets the slice of king cake with the baby figurine then is traditionally supposed to host the following year's uh mardi gras celebrations oh so, so it's really, like an assignment it's not like yeah. oh it's good luck it's like hey congratulations you yeah it's like oh no i gotta year. have all you jerks over here next year <laughs> oh boy um but it's a pretty cool and quirky tradition. And I was even thinking about it. I'm like, well, you bake a cake, so you don't want to bake it with a plastic figurine inside. But then yet, how do you insert the figurine so it doesn't look like anything was actually inserted into it? So more research to do regarding exactly how the uh, baby cake is placed inside the king cake in a way that no one knows uh, where it will come up when you slice it up. So the Baby Cake's identity that New Orleans used, of course, it was a great callback to their own, you know, history uh, celebrating Mardi Gras. But there's no such thing as a baby cake. It's the baby figurine in the king cake. And they kind of made their own identity based off of that. So this king cake identity was a good way to uh, look back and remember the New Orleans baby cakes and try to make a little bit more sense uh, of that identity as well. So a lot going on here per usual. Yeah. And one of my favorite things about this logo is is 
know, it's very colorful and it's different from the normal like blue and white scheme that Biloxi has. But on top of that, there is a little hint of Biloxi in it. And I don't know if you guys caught this. The eyes are the same eyes as the Shucker. Oh, yes. As the clan. Yeah. And they're kind of embracing that, too. Yeah. And not only that, but like the uh, the way that it's carrying, you know, the mask, the the weird uh, little eye mask thing is the same way that it poses with the bat in the normal logo. Correct. Yeah. And both those logos are done by Brandios, the uh, Shuckers primary. And I'm sorry, Sam, but it's an oyster. Oyster. (laughs) It's not the actual (laughs) physical person who's the Shucker. It's the oyster about to be shucked, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's not. It'd be cool if they branded around just like a dude, like, <laughs> like wearing like uh, like overalls and you know work gear and just ready to stick a knife into an oyster. But uh, they're the shuckers. The oyster, the oyster is depicted in the logo. And you're right, guys. Those are the same eyes and and done by the you know the same companies. So I guess they were able to just be like boop boop, lift those eyes off the dock, put them on a king cake, and surely the first eyes in logo history that have been uh, utilized for an oyster and a cake. Yeah, I feel pretty confident in saying that. Pretty, and maybe this is a step towards making the Biloxi eyes like on par with Lake Elsinore for the most famous eyes in minor league baseball. Yeah, just keep going down. Let's that start road. that rivalry. Whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa! The Chattanooga Lookouts have out Chattanooga Lookouts. Yes, both of those true. teams for years. Yes. That's true. Very gotta famous. Got to fight for my. Got to fight for my Chattanooga friends. No, that's to- that's totally fair. Yeah, maybe we'll have to start a bracket of uh, best eyes. I kind of like that idea. I do too. <laughs> Yeah, Lake Elf. I mean, in Chattanooga's case, they're the lookouts, so eyes kind of make sense. It's like, hey, look out. Use your eyes and look out. I mean, it also references the Lookout Mountain. But in Lake Elsinore, it's an interesting story because they're the storm, so their original logo was those eyes in a storm cloud. And just somehow over the years, they're like, these eyes look really cool, and they just took them out of the storm cloud and just had them exist on their own. Um, We should do an all-eyes episode one day. I agree. (laughs) <laughs> There's no transition out of that. Um, there is a wider scale uh, story that uh, encompasses something like the king cake slash baby cake slash whatever as well, which Ben has up on the site right now. And it is the tastiest alternate identities for an affiliate of each major league team. And I got to say... I wish that I uh, had thought of this before this morning, but we should have done like a like a power ranking of which of these do you want to try the most. But first off, Ben, take us through. Uh, you got to search through all the systems, all the affiliations, all the food identities, and you put together. Uh, is this the is the characterization of these your favorite for each system, basically? Uh, not necessarily, um, but you know that is a, a format we you know use you know, four articles on MLB.com and MILB.com, you know, X from every organization. It's a good way to incorporate every major league organization into a story and and in the process highlight 30 um, minor league teams. Um, So first of all, it was just going through in each organization. And fortunately, I've been doing this long enough. I didn't have to do a ton of research for a lot of organizations. I was like, oh, they have this and this and this. Um, But it was interesting going through it because as I went through there were a few organizations that were kind of light. Chicago Cubs, nothing. Could not find a food-based alternate identity through the entirety of the Cubs system, You know, which would be what Iowa Cubs, Tennessee Smokies, uh, Myrtle Beach Pelicans, and uh, South, Bend. South Bend Cubs. Thank you, Sam. He's always there when I need me. Mm-hmm. I mean, wait, when I need him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when he needs me. Yeah. 
<laughs> close enough. Uh, and the Mariners as well. Where uh, So with the Cubs, I just kind of wrote, hey, they should be the Myrtle Beach bog balls. Because I remember visiting Myrtle Beach at one time and they had bog balls at the uh, uh, concession stand. Tyler, a former Myrtle Beach resident, have you uh, tried the bog balls? Yeah, I think I had a bog ball here or there. <laughs> a singular uh, bog ball. I think I, I think I ate a bog ball. Uh, they also like, and I know this is not specific to Myrtle Beach, but Myrtle Beach was the first place that I ever saw boiled peanuts sold at a ballpark, um, which I found very weird. Uh, still kind of find very weird. Um, but yeah, there's. it does surprise me that a, a place in such a food-centric locale does not have a food identity. What's going on down there? Birds. Also, Iowa. I, I'm surprised Iowa yeah. didn't have something. I thought Iowa did something with tenderloins, didn't they? They started serving tenderloins, but they are not among the teams with the tenderloin gotcha. alternate identity, gotcha. which is both Fort Wayne and Peoria. So they probably don't want to add a third one to the mix at this point. Um, but yeah, And then the Mariners, too, kind of had to fudge it a little bit. Uh, just said, hey, there's a team in their system called the Modesto Nuts, so they represent every day. But that's because it could not find uh, a standalone alternate identity. Um, so in some cases with this story, it was just not much to choose from. Like, oh, I'm just going to have to go with this. Like Minnesota was another kind of rough one. And I was reminded uh, they had their uh, groupers alternate identity a few years back in Fort Myers. So I was like, oh, got to go with that. Other ones, you know, it was just like you had multiple teams in an organization that each had their own multiple identities and it was just a smorgasbord. So maybe in some of those cases I pick my favorite, but, you know, in these articles too, you're thinking like, well, what is really popular or might just what trying to discern the mind of the average reader, what might people most want to see or, you know, what do we just have the best available, you know, graphics and images for. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into picking this. And while, you know, I wrote the story and my name is on the byline, you know, I told your friend of mine, Josh Jackson, who celebrated a birthday on January 31st. Happy birthday to he Josh He did. Jackson. Happy birthday, Josh. And uh, he, I said, put your name on this too. Because even though he didn't you know, really write much of it, he is the producer. And a story like that that incorporates so many uh, things, uh, so many teams, organizations, uh, you know, a video component at the top, getting all those graphics in the right place. I mean, links to buying all the gear. Yeah. And I said, Josh, put your byline in it and just, you know, Mr. Modest wouldn't do it. So I think Josh Jackson, Jackson should have credit for it. He is a hall of famer. He was born on January 31st, Nolan Ryan, Ernie Banks, Jackie Robinson, Josh Jackson. That is an illustrious, illustrious quartet. Uh, but anyway, he helped a lot on that story. I think it's a fun one to read, fun one to put together. Uh, check it out. A What is it called? The tastiest alternate identity from uh, every minor league system. There's there's a lot in there. One thing I would like to see from alternate food identities moving forward is is something we can take from you know the Portland Sea Dogs and their ba- main bean suppas. I mean, we talked about that identity before. But like lean into an accent too. One of the great things about all these places incorporate is that your has local pronunciations of things. Yeah. So like your Phillies pick is the hoagies. Yeah. Which like, I don't know how you spell hoagies in a Philly accent. There's a definite Philly accent with hoagie, uh, but water ice. Well, the, that, the, that is a team that you could have picked here too. Like that is another example. I would like to see more of that. Yeah. They actually did that. Lehigh Valley with their water ice, Italian water ice identity was uh, spelled W O O D E R. Yeah. The way it's pronounced water ice. Yeah. Hoagies, I think in Philly is basically pronounced as it's spelled, but it's that kind of like hogies. <laughs> I grew up in the You're area. The one who's only yeah. going to be allowed to say that. Yeah. I grew up in the area and I'm not very good at doing it, but yeah, there's definitely a kind of elongated vowel sound. Hoagies, whatever. Oh. I'll work on it. I would like to 
at least pick out like your fit. I made a list while we were doing this. It's blurred. I made a list while we were doing this of the five that I most want to try. You don't have to do five, but I do want to hear like among the things that are on here, I want to try all of these. Like there aren't any that I really look at that I think like, no, nah, I don't think I would have that. Um, the only one that I find like kind of, uh, nah, I don't want to call out a team for what I do. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. There are so many of these and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I would want to try it. But what, what are the ones that if you had to pick, uh, give me some of the, the top finishers for you. Then you want to start or you want me to? Um, well, you know, putting it together. I mean, and hey, now we're in a uh, dream world where I'm not really worried about uh, celiac disease. One yeah. Or the other. yeah. And, and you get to free. throw all that to the wind. Although I do think I still, uh, you know, gravitate towards those because that's what I eat more often and, and like. So, um, well, whether gluten-free or not, like I know Rochester plates, I mean, it's garbage. It's, it's a technically a garbage plate. They just went with plate because I think the name was probably trademarked by the restaurant Nick Tahoe's that uh, started uh, started that whole trend. But I know they're disgusting looking, but I love that kind of food, like some French fries, chopped up hot dogs and meat sauce. Um, you know, you can have mac and cheese in it, you know, on a plate is, you know, when I'm hungry, that kind of thing, especially like more late at night, just sounds like the thing to do. And, you know, then Canapolis cues, you know, it's just barbecue, but you know, you just go down that barbecue, uh, thought trail and you know there's a lot a lot of really good a lot of good barbecue out there um and i don't know why i'm so meat centric today i'm trying to eat less meat but you know a wisconsin brat is just they do them well great uniforms uh, too yeah and great uniforms incorporating us not actual suspenders and lederhosen but you know the suspenders and later lederhosen are incorporated into that german themed identity so those are a few of mine that just pop into my head immediately samuel I mean, uh, this is probably saying a lot about me and how much I gravitate towards sweets. But I mean, my love of cider donuts is well established on, on this podcast and in the world in general. But also, whenever you have a good churro, man, good churros, like very yeah. few things in life hit like a very, very good warm churro. Uh, so San Jose doing the churros every year is just, I think, one of the great hits. Like we kind of take it, uh, you know. Uh, for granted a little bit uh, because it is so good and it is such a standard. It's a standard setter. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit off the board here, though. Those are my two sweets. I've never had one, and Tyler, I know you've had one, a Runza. For some reason, every time I see the Omaha Runza's logo, it just makes me want to try one so desperately. Um, and there, there's Tyler. Yeah, baby. Tyler once again did not even have to get up from his seat to procure a cap. Just Thankfully, like it was within arm's reach. I mean, it's just beef, cabbage, onions packed into a pocket. Yeah, you can get cheese. Goodness, uh, yeah. It really is like every every Eastern or Central European culture that immigrated to the United States had like its form of a runza. There's like Paxis, right? Uh, Patsies. Poonchkies, uh, like Polish, Czech, um, Runza's, I think the background for Runza's is Czech also. But yeah, like every culture, especially that seemed to settle in the Midwest or the upper Midwest, they all had it. It's just like a, you know, it's like a pocket of dough. It's like a calzone for Italian people, but it's like, you know, not a sauce in it. Instead, it's packed with this other stuff. Um, yeah, it's, I'm a huge fan. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, mean yeah. in the same way, like California burritos makes me hungry for California burritos. Right. Uh, and plus their look is always great because they've got like the the tin foil 
hat look. Yeah. Which the, is another thing you just associate with It's such a simple little thing. I'm not yeah. eating the tinfoil, to be clear. <laughs> tinfoil Don't hat. Don't eat tinfoil hats. Kids. Yeah, tinfoil hat has different connotations. It does have a different connotation. <laughs> yeah. Aluminum um, foil, I guess I should say. Yeah. But like, uh, yeah. still, like, I, I just love those little touches. That's like, what is everything you think about with this food stuff and how can we pack it into a look? And they, they did a really good job with that as well. You guys named uh, three of the ones that were on my list the plates, uh, cider donuts. I've never had a cider donut. Sam and I have had this discussion many, many times because I don't just want to get one like out here. I want to get one out there in the ancestral home of the cider donuts. So I would like to do that at some point. So maybe this fall. Um, the churros, the other thing I love about the churros is the fact that it's not just in honor of the dessert, but it's in honor of a legendary churro vendor, churro man. Yep. Uh, yeah. Belito uh, Cerda. Perfect. Super super churros, man. Ben knew it right off uh, the top of his head. Super churros, man, not just churros, man. Yeah. Um, and, and so that is awesome. I also would really like to try. This is not something that I order very often, uh, maybe ever, but the cashew chickens. Springfield, uh, Missouri, claiming the uh, invention of cashew chicken from a restaurant in that area. I would like to try that dish, like from the OG place. Um, and also the green chili cheeseburgers. A green chili cheeseburger is like my favorite thing in the world. And so Albuquerque, uh, you know, one of the crown jewel franchises in minor league baseball. I cannot turn down a green chili cheeseburger ever. So that's a, a big one for me. A team that I used to work for, Altoona. Get out of here with that pizza. It's disgusting. It's horrifying. Uh, that's like an abomination unto pizza. Um, salt potatoes, I'm a little baffled by still that it's like that's a thing. Like I, you know, I I get it, but it's like that's very basic. Uh, I would try it, obviously. Um, one that I'm in two that I'm very intrigued by. One is the Augusta pimento cheese, which is just a pimento cheese sandwich. Is that just like pimento cheese spread between two pieces of bread? Does it come with other things? Is it a grilled pimento cheese? I, I need to learn more about that. Uh, and also the one that I think I'm most baffled by that I don't even remember hearing about this one, the Lansing Olive Burgers. That which debuted is last year. Last year, it is a beef patty with mayo and a chopped olive mixture, which I would definitely try. I'm pro-olive. But I had no, that's one of those things every year it feels like we talk with Akron about like, oh, here's a, speaking of which, sauerkraut balls, I would absolutely try. Uh, but we talk about these food dishes that I've never heard of. Never in my life have I heard of an olive burger, but I would definitely try that. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that either. Um, and apparently there's an annual Lansing Olive Burger Festival. So the Lugnuts uh, did that around the time of the olive burger festival i don't know its origins in lansing um and they had joey chestnut out uh, to the ballpark to set an olive burger eating world record which i mean i guess there had been one or maybe <laughs> maybe that they, they just called him in to just establish it like all right we're gonna have like the greatest dude in the world at this really weird and disgusting thing just set the record and uh, he <laughs> did it um so joey chestnut legendary competitive uh eater has uh the olive burger eating world record, which he set at a Lansing lug nuts game. What a world. <laughs> All right, guys, let's move on to uh, our final topic before we get to our interview for this week. Uh, the Indianapolis long scope of AAA baseball uh, over the last couple of generations has uh, been graced by the presence of one razor shines. And uh, Ben, you learned this week that Indy is going to be doing a tribute to one of their longtime heroes, uh, in their recent baseball history. 
Yeah, Razor Shines played, uh, I think, believe parts of nine seasons uh, with the Indianapolis Indians almost exclusively when they were a Montreal Expos affiliate uh, beginning in the year 1984. Uh, he the team won a lot of, they were in the American association then, but they won several titles during that time. He had some, you know, huge clutch hits and he was just a beloved player for the better part of a decade in that triple a city. And one of the things that made him kind of over the top popular is that the PA PA announcer at the time, a guy named by the name of Ken hunt just started, who knows, it just popped into his head, but just started introducing him. And I can't do this. Well, Tyler, maybe you can a little bit more, but just like a razor shines, you know, really, I don't know if he actually rolled the R, but, you know, just really drawing out that R. And I think just the fact that he was a good player, was with the team for a long time and always had that really specific introduction just cemented him in uh, the team's lore and history. So at the end of this season, the 2024 season in September, they're having razor razor shines weekend and they're retiring his number three at the ballpark. And, you know, this is a franchise that goes back something about 120 years. And uh, so to retire a guy's number and recognize him as, you know, arguably the most popular player in the entire history of that franchise is really something. And uh, I visited Indianapolis last year and I talked to uh, Howard Kelman, you know, who's a franchise icon in his own right. He's been with the team since I believe 1974. And he told me the same thing. Like he is a, you know, encyclopedia of Indianapolis baseball history. And he said, you know, Razor Shines was just, you know, the guy. Uh, so I love those kind of things, you know, celebrating guys who you might know. I know Razor Shines, I believe he was a was it first or third base coach with the Mets a little bit. He was in the major leagues, you know, for parts of several seasons with the Expos. He has a name outside of Indianapolis, but I love those kind of players who find a way to kind of become heroes in a triple a city and always remembered. So that inspired me in the newsletter. And I hope you are subscribing to the new subscription link at this point. Uh, I don't have the URL handy, but please just subscribe to my newsletter. Figure it out, people. I, I really would appreciate it. No, seriously, I, I appreciate everyone who subscribes. But anyway, in my newsletter this week, which is uh, came out on Thursday, and in a standalone article, I used that Razor Shines uh, promo that Indy announced to write about Razor Shines a little bit, and then uh, call up some other you know AAA International League heroes. So there's more you could go with, but. You know, I have Jeff Manto, who in the late 80s with the Buffalo Bisons just tore it up, you know, for his four seasons there. And they retired his number again, an organization that, you know, has roots going back to the 19th century, retired Jeff Manto's number. Of course, King Mike Hessman in Toledo, the all time uh, minor league baseball home run leader who hit more home runs for the Toledo Mudhens than he did for any other team uh, on his way to hitting 433 minor league home runs total. Uh, Sean Kazmar, a more recent one, you know, who is the all-time Braves organization AAA hits leader. And uh, he did that playing for the Gwinnett Braves slash uh, Stripers uh, through the years. And he also, you know, appeared in the major leagues in 2008. And then he got a brief call up in, uh, what was that, 2021, 22? But he had this ridiculous amount of time uh, between major league appearances, but he spent a lot of that interim uh, you know, racking up a triple A hits record with uh, Gwinnett. And uh, there was one other guy I had. Who was he? It's going to bother me. Well, one that came to my mind and somebody we were talking about before was Ryan Fitzgerald, right. the, the Worcester Red Sox, who got picked up by the Royals in the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft this year. Um, so he went from the Red Sox to the Royals, and the Woo Sox essentially threw him a going away party. 
because he was known so well by that community. He was like kind of a decent utility player, moved around a, a little bit, uh, never really got his shot proper with the Red Sox. That's why he was left vulnerable in the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft. But everybody in Worcester knows him as Fitzy. He even they used to sell gear with his name on it and his likeness on it, just saying Fitzy because he was a local folk hero. And to see a player getting a going away party was just a new thing. I don't think he's going to necessarily get his number retired by the Worcester Red Sox someday, but still, you can tell how much of a character and how beloved he was in that in that city. Yeah, that's Do a great example. Of you- have a uh, a triple a um name from your childhood that you really that you've really hung on to all these years like i lived in a triple a city when i was little before it became a big league city ben you were close to minor league city same you were close to minor league cities was there like a guy who you really latched on to yeah I, I have two names that pop up very random first of all the one i forgot to mention is corky miller oh, uh, of the course. little little bats uh you know catching you know he's yeah. a catcher the hardest, most demanding position, and he retired and had his number retired with the Louisville Bats, you know, as the all-time franchise games played leader, because uh, he had two uh, stints with the club, one in the early 21st century and then another in the early 2010s, um, and he was known as much at the by the end for his, you know, facial hair and his Fu, Ma- Fu Manchu mustache uh, as he was, you know, for uh, what he brought to the field. Uh, but anyway, to go back to your question, Tyler, um, yeah, going to Scranton Wilkesbury Red Barons games in my youth, uh, just two names that. It always stuck with me and none really, you know, made too much of a dent to elsewhere. I don't believe, but Steve Scarsoni and Jeff Grotewald are just names that I remember. Names. I remember just thinking like those guys are great and uh, being excited when they played for the uh, Red Barons in the what was it, early 90s, probably. Um, so, yeah, those are two that come to my mind. Sam, what do you got? Mine is, and I try to think about this every time I go to a minor league ballpark or every time we cover games just on the site in general, because every night you don't know what's going to happen at a minor league stadium and who's going to take something away from that. I went to a game, I, I don't know, it was early 2000s, late 90s in Pawtucket when the Red Sox AAA affiliate was there. And Michael Coleman homered twice, which like to those of us who cover minor league baseball every day, a two homer game is not the most standout thing of all time. But for me, that was just like, he's going to say, greatest triple a slugger yeah. Ever lived. yeah. <laughs> the guy went deep twice in one game and he became my guy, Michael Coleman. He was like in the Yankee system for a bit. I think he got a brief cup of coffee with the Red Sox, which might've happened before I even saw him. But then all of a sudden he's, he's just a name that it stuck with me close to 20 years late, 25 years later. Um, so that's all it takes is like just going to one game, having one guy stand out. It doesn't have to be Jackson holiday or, or Jackson Churio. It can be some random left fielder and they become folk heroes just that easily. That is, yeah, that, cool. that reminded me real quick. Um, I went to a Clearwater Phillies game, uh, with a friend of mine who had a house in Florida in the nineties and saw a player named Dave Doster hit a couple home runs and he became my friend Joe and I's favorite player based on one Clearwater Phillies game. Then I went to a Reading Phillies game the next year, which was the only Reading Phillies game I went to in my like youth. Um, despite it only being an hour away, but Dave Doster again, hit a home run, had a great game. So then like David Doster was like my, my guy. And in the late nineties, I believe it was 99. He basically spent the whole year on the major league roster as kind of a late inning defensive replacement infielder kind of guy. I didn't get much playing time. And I went to a, uh, photo day you know back in the day when they would let you on the field at vet stadium and i was with my brother and i was taking pictures of my brother with you know all these different players you know bobby abreu mike lieberthal and i was in college and a hipster and i was just like no i only want dave doster (laughs) and somewhere i hope we i dig it up some somewhere there's a picture of me in a thrift store t-shirt and really long hair 
next to Dave Doster at Veteran Stadium. I got to dig that up. That is pretty great. Uh, for me, by the way, this is a player who could have tied all the three of us and Josh Jackson together because early on in his career, he played for Redding, Portland, Maine, and Scranton Wilkesbury. Uh, but then he later spent parts of three seasons with the Denver Zephyrs at AAA, uh, and his name was Jim Olander. And very similarly to Razor Shines, he had a very distinctive public address announcement, which the PA guy would say, Jim Olander, and he would hold the O forever and then say Lander. And I remember thinking Jim Olander was like the greatest baseball player to ever live and not get a crack at the big leagues. But in my defense... In 1991, in the pre-humidor era of baseball in Denver, uh, he, as a member of the then uh, AAA Milwaukee Brewers affiliate, in 134 games, Jim Olander slashed 325, 405, 484, uh, but he was not much of a power hitter. He had uh, only nine home runs in playing that many games at Mile High Stadium. Uh, but still, I thought Jim Olander was a legend, and he also helped lead uh, the Denver Zephyrs to the 1991 AAA Classic Championship, which used to be, people forget this, uh, they used to play a best-of-seven series uh, between the top two AAA finishing squads. There were three AAA leagues at the time, uh, but they would play uh, a partnership series between, it was the American Association and the International League. They would play a best-of-seven back then. So now we have the Get AAA back. Championship weekend and all that. Yeah. yeah, Very different time. Jim Olander, whatever you're doing these days, Somebody's somebody's keeping your name alive. We salute, uh, <laughs> we salute you. Real men of genius. Um, all right, dudes, let's uh, pivot to uh, a very fun conversation that we got coming up uh, on this week's episode. Ben, give us the synopsis. Yeah, well, Tyler mentioned it up top, but we have Ryan Foos of Fooser Studios. Uh, a logo designer, you know, professionally for over the last decade, uh, done some work in minor league baseball, most recently with the Jersey Diners and seeing his work on that alternate identity, you know, inspired us to get in touch with him and learn more about him and his career. So here's Ryan Foos of Fooser Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Here on the show before the show podcast, we are joined by Ryan Foos of Fooser Studios, a uh, logo design firm. Um, I don't know exactly how you uh, define your company, but you design logos, Ryan, and we became uh, maybe not aware, but more aware of your work with the recent uh, Jersey Diners unveil that you did for the Somerset Patriots, a uh, really detailed set of logos for an alternate identity. So before we get into everything else, uh, well, one, welcome. And two, tell us a little bit about the Jersey Diners. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, the, have gotten to have a nice relationship with Somerset. And uh, I think they're slowly but surely getting into that uh, specialty brands and how had a few ideas, the marketing guy over there and diners just kept coming back up and kept coming back up. And when you see the connection locally and statewide for the diner community, it only made sense that we kind of deep dive into that. 
uh, and went through a bunch of different iterations and it just kept coming back to coffee, which is, uh, I think, as they mentioned and was written about by you guys, that it's the first cup of coffee. It's the first thing you're asked at a diner. It just, it's a, it's neutral among everybody that it's not a waitress or a cook or anything like that. It's, it's this simple ceramic off-white mug that kind of is a staple regardless of what diner you're in, in Jersey or, or nationwide. So it was a really, really fun project to work on and surprised that it's, it's taken off the way it has, but it, it's been really awesome to see. Yeah. So that's obviously one of your more recent works, but, uh, I think people be interested to understand and know a little bit more about how one gets into this line of work. So let's uh, now back it up. Um, it says your studio was established in 2013, but you know, what's your background and, and what led you to pursuing this line of work? Uh, it was in college and sitting in a one bedroom apartment, realizing that I keep wanting to get into sports design, but I hadn't done anything with it. And so dropped everything and entered contests and cold called and did the thing that I think a lot of creatives do in this world of just trying to get your foot in the door. Uh, and at some point made some fictitious teams. One was if you're familiar with Ebor city, it's a Cuban neighborhood outside Tampa, uh, and made a cigar smoking rooster that somehow got the attention of a VP of marketing, Kurt Hunziker at minor league baseball. Uh, and that same week, they were having discussions about, we need to get an internal design team going here at the HQ uh, and join them as head of brand development for like two or three years. And we did COPA and fun to be a fan and really started pushing initiatives that we thought were, were a stepping stone to really being an awesome part of minor league baseball and showcasing why it's special. So yeah, it's been a, a nice run of then working for Fanatics and the NFL and MLB departments and now at BetMGM doing user interface. So last decade has all been in sports and it's all been in design, but it's all been very different and, and weird and interesting. And Fooser ends up being this kind of collect all umbrella of nights and weekends. And uh, the wife sometimes doesn't appreciate the amount of time that's been in the studio, but get to work with a lot of fun people and a lot of awesome projects. Yeah. So when you describe what you do, what your job is, um, you know, how do you sum it up? You know, the so-called elevator pitch, just a, a brief description. I think it actually ends up turning generic. It's like a sports creative because you got a little bit of branding, a little bit of marketing. It's a little bit of, uh, you know, how are we writing and talking about it in a copyright type of way? And so uh, sports creative. Uh, I love talking about sports and I love talking about design and the best part about, especially the baseball community, whether it's journalists like you or the owners of teams and all that is, I think we all have this love affair with the sport and are willing to take as much time as possible to kind of discuss all the intricacies and, and things that make it awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Ryan, as, as you've gone through this career, starting with, you know, Ybor City to, to where you are now to working on the, these Jersey diners and especially the Copa identities, how would you kind of describe your style? Uh, bold, simple. I, I think it's try to be fun. Uh, I think I've grown it as a designer of uh, you always want to add something special or unique. And I think it ends up getting cheesy. So I've kind of left that behind and definitely make sure that it fits the style of the city or the community that we're designing for. But ultimately, we just want to make something that looks good on a hat. Uh, it's the best part is it, the baseball cap is so international. doesn't matter gender, age. It's, it's a baseball cap. So if it looks good on a hat, you're, you're three quarters of the way there of creating something that's really, really fun. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and looking at some of your Copa identities that you have on your website, you have the Elote, you have the, the Flying Chanclas, uh, the Monarchas. Is there any one of those that was your favorite to design at the time? Uh, the first one that we really, really dug down into was the, the Vegas raised the plots us. And it was, I think skulls are always cool things to draw anyways, but then you start adding a silver tooth in there. The colors worked out so well. I think it was a really cool history statement. And, uh, we even had a, at one point we wanted to do, we were talking with the guys out there of doing a night game where they are that kind of sugar skull and a day game where they're the minor. So they have mm-hmm. kind of this night and day human skeleton version. So I think there's still some legs with it and I'd love for them to kind of update it and see what we can do. But I think that one stands out as the first real true on field uh, from my side. Uh, But then the colors and everything just really worked out well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to ask specifically about the Flying Chonklas too, just because I feel like that's become maybe the iconic brand of Copa, just in terms of the way it's spread around. It's become, you know, it went viral when it came out. A lot of people who understood <laughs> what, you know, Abuelas can do with a, with a simple flip-flop uh, got really excited about that concept. But it is so simple because it is just a flip-flop that gets put on a hat. Take us through just the design of that, not trying to do too much with the logo, but just letting it stand for itself. So we were sitting in minor league baseball's, uh, I think they called it the library, which was just an extended closet. Uh, But we were having a conversation with San Antonio and we were throwing out ideas back and forth. And then they came back with, with, we want to be the flying chanclas and nobody on our side knew what the heck that was. And then you start digging into it and it's a term of endearment for, for family members. And I think that's what makes a lot of minor league baseball logos really awesome is they're okay being kind of outside the box. They're okay talking about things and doing things from a visual standpoint that not a lot of pro sports teams can do. And so we started of, is the, the like this anamorphic sandal character? Is it swooshing through the air creating an S.A.? And then it came back to a, it's not about the sandal. It's who's throwing it. And it's not about San Antonio. It's about this entire culture. So that's why it ended up being just the most straightforward logo of literally a chancla flying. And, and it, it worked out because it didn't matter where you lived or who, you know, you grew up with everybody in that community goes, Oh my God, yes, this is exactly what we need. So uh, it worked out really, really well at no point in the design you know, of it, did we think it would again, kind of like diners take off the way that it did. But man, when that dropped, I think it was really one of those that it was a goofy name, but it had really true, strong meaning that connected with a lot of folks. Ryan, when you look back on kind of the formative things, uh, especially growing up, that really uh, drew you into being obsessed with this career path. What were uh, either, you know, some of the logos that you loved or just some of the things that made it such a uh, a romantic, mesmerizing thing that you knew you wanted to get into it for your life? Uh, so I was a hockey guy growing up. And so a, a, a goalie mask is so badass. Like, it's just the greatest thing in the world. And so I think it was like one of those things of, you know, if, 95% of them are taking the team brand, but making an illustrative version of it. So it's not just the Boston Bruin B. It's all of a sudden this, this bear that's coming and scraping down the side and all this kind of stuff. Or 
your avalanche, there's a Yeti all of a sudden showing up on a mask and all that. So Howler! Howler! That's my guy. That's my guy, Howler. So I think that's what it was growing up is I had a roller hockey helmet that I must have sanded, primed, painted, sanded, primed, painted maybe 3,000 times. Like there was probably a good quarter of an inch of paint and not saying that any of the paint jobs were great, but it was this thought of, you know, uh, a lot of, I, I got made fun of at one point in college because a professor was asking, well, how'd you get into creatives? And somebody said, well, I used to color with crayons. And he's like, what 12 year old didn't color with crayons? But the, the difference for me was thinking about those drawings, but then how are they applied? Which I think is a, a big, big difference between what looks cool and then saying, all right, I only have this three inch by three inch chin. Do I put the goalie's number there? Is it some secondary element? So it was, it was the goalie mask of hockey that really started saying, not only can you create the brands that's on the, on the front of the sweater, but then all of a sudden these secondary illustrations that I really thought were cool. Uh, this is the coolest thing in the world to me because six, seven months ago, I started playing roller hockey again for the first time since high school, <laughs> and I am a goalie now. So if you have a uh, a tutorial on sanding and coming up with a design and painting it, please send it my way. Uh, yeah. Especially if it's Howler, the avalanche, uh, the missing avalanche mascot from the early 2000s, because that's a passion <laughs> project of mine. Um, Ryan, when you uh, got into you know creating these identities for minor league teams, so much of it is the the local um cultural uh i guess identity for a, a lack of a better term but there's so much that you need to learn about a specific place and the thing that's cool about copa like you said a little while ago is it doesn't have to be necessarily tied just to a location because it's a cultural thing but mm -hmm. when you do come up with a location specific idea like the food identities and uh other alternate things what is the research process like for you to put yourself in the the shoes of a fan in Somerset or in Albuquerque or wherever uh, to nail down on, okay, this is what I want this to feel like for this community? Yeah, sometimes it's it's heading up to these cities. Sometimes it's the beauty of YouTube is there is 50 videos for every subject matter in the world. I also rely a lot on the teams. And I know that kind of sounds like a, you know, a slacker answer, but they need to be the most knowledgeable of the subject because they're the ones interacting with fans when they come to the ballpark. Well, why'd you do this? Why'd you come up with this? They're selling it, they're marketing it. So they need to be the owners and kind of experts of, of each of these brands first and foremost. And then the nice part about that is they can start reconnecting with the community on a different level. So, all right, hey, uh, you know, we're doing this brand, but all of a sudden we're including this nonprofit and this group and this group. And all of a sudden people that might not have come to the ballpark are intrigued because it's something to do outside of baseball. And so uh, really just kind of finding out these little knickknacks and what makes it really custom that, uh, you know, Jersey Diners was ultimately, I mean, going with the stainless steel and the checkers, I think is kind of normal. But then you go like a Midwest diner, it's not as bright and colorful and it doesn't have that retro feel as a lot of those do. So it's a matter of just really digging down either locally or working with the teams to say, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are people wanting? Because they're the ones that are going to ultimately buy the stuff. One thing that I want to ask you about before we talk about this diner's identity is you've gotten to do a lot of stuff that's um, sort of... I don't even know what the actual term what it would be but almost concept art or uh you know faux back art i know you did a lot of work 
on uh, when minor league baseball came out with the nine initiative uh, honoring the history of the Negro leagues. You got to go back and find, you know, team names and team identities that had never had, you know, actual uh, visual brands the way that teams do now, uh, which is something that you've created that's that's up on your site. Uh, the Negro League Redux is uh, is what you've branded it on there. How cool is that to be able to take something that did exist but didn't necessarily have what we would consider now as a visual branding package and think like, oh, I want to apply something to that. That's got to be really cool to have that freedom of creativity. Yeah, and it was it was a passion project. And it was this concept of you have this barnstorming team from 1923. And you guys know all too well, there's a lot of baseball history where it's black, a blank hats. Uh, maybe a letter mark that was really generic, but ultimately they didn't have a brand. They might have had a name and everything like that. So it was a it was a passion project where it didn't necessarily want to touch many of the bigger, well-known teams, but more so as like the Memphis Barber Boys or something like that. And uh, Louis Armstrong had a team down in New Orleans called the Secret Nine. And I'm just like, this is the kind of stuff that should totally be a thing. And so not only looking that up but then thinking what happens if it was a, a 2021 streetwear brand that now you're connecting with youth that would have no interest in baseball but all of a sudden they're interested in the iconography of it all so yeah I, it's something that i i probably had two a year to uh and just kind of think about well what could have been and maybe one of these days uh the jumbo shrimp will take me up on an offer or, or the red birds out of memphis to be like hey maybe we will do something like this but uh shout out to those guys you know where to find me when that time comes but uh yeah it's just there's just so much history and that's what is so amazing about baseball is every sport has history but baseball just has a next level between uh affiliated unaffiliated independent barnstormer sandlot teams i think there's just so so much awesome history that needs to be told and we've only scratched the surface of it and ryan speaking about history um your personal history where are you from and uh you know where are you based out of now so living in Tampa, Florida, well, we moved down here a decade ago. I thought this was a short-term thing, and now we're still here. So, uh, But originally born in Boston, grew up in Wisconsin, so a little bit of everything. But uh, went to school in northern Wisconsin at UW-Stout, went to grad school at NC State down in Raleigh. Uh, and so, yeah, just always knew I wanted to be a designer. I think that's probably the easiest decision I've ever made was uh, while a lot of peers in high school were thinking about where the hell am I going, I I applied to one school and one school only, got into their design program and said, that's it. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's been a, a fun ride, but uh, yeah, just kind of doing the thing. Yeah, I'm with the uh, Somerset Patriots, uh, Jersey Diners identity. Um, I think they've become familiar with your work because you did their Copa identity, the Zaros. Um, is that one of the, was that the first time uh, that you, you just done work on behalf of a team directly and it wasn't part of a larger, um, you know, marketing campaign within minor league baseball, or have you done, you know, other stuff where minor league teams specifically contact you? Uh, yeah, that was one of the, one of the first, after leaving minor league baseball, I did another Durham, uh, their Cervezas one was right after minor league baseball time and all that. So it's been sporadic at, it's never uh, we we talk about the dark days of 2020 to 2022, and uh, especially with new era timelines, there was even an extra year added on there because teams were just not sure about committing to things that far out. So 
starting to finally pick up and working with Asheville and Lehigh Valley and Somerset and some other ones that are joining on. So it's, it's slowly, but surely increasing, but yeah, leaving minor league baseball, then the pandemic really scrapping three years of people feeling comfortable about doing other things. It's, it's finally coming back. And I think you're seeing that now that it's not necessarily a logo November, but, uh, it's now logo February and March because of merch uh, holdups, but it's fun to see that the community is coming back on the design side. Yeah. And not to put you on the spot, but obviously there's a, a lot of minor league baseball teams out there, not to mention independence, summer collegiate. Are there any that have really caught your eye in terms of, you know, just where they're located or the way they're already branding that you say to yourself, Oh, that's something I'd really love to work on or where you even have your own ideas. Like, Oh man, I'd love this alternate identity for this location. I mean, how often does your brain just go into these theoreticals? Uh, yeah, it's, it, <laughs> oof. I had, uh, at one point starting this whole thing off, I had like this, this list of 10 clubs at the time where I'm like, my God, if I could somehow work with them, like, it was like the old Ogden Raptors at that one point where I'm like, this could be so cool. What's going on? Why isn't this updated? And to be honest with you, a lot of them have changed. Uh, I'm a big proponent of not having uh, affiliated teams with parent names. So there was a, there was a long stretch where I was working with Dunedin that there was a thought of they were going to rebrand into something different. And then of course, 2020 hit and everything got out of whack, but I think those are probably on the top of my list of how can you see it and go, I know that's a Braves organization. I know that's a Pirates organization. There's there's some systems that do a really, really great job. But I think those are the ones that intrigue me is how can you still feel like it's part of the family, but those communities can say, this is my team uh, and my logo. So I think that's probably on the top of my list at this point. Well, one thing, just to pivot back to Jersey Diners real quick as we kind of wrap up, you know, one of my favorite parts of this identity wasn't just the cof- cup of coffee that you mentioned before. It was the state and eggs. It was the baseball pancakes. It was the, you know, the many different logo sets that the came happy with waitress. the happy waitress. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, how many of those did you pitch to them and how many of those did they come to you with in terms of like, hey, we just want a lot of different lo- looks. This is not just one thing we're, we're doing here. Uh, it was probably a 50, 50 split. I know for sure. They're like, we want a coffee pot for sure. We want pancakes for sure. I think the state and eggs is something that I threw out there and it didn't quite catch on right away. I think it was a little too tongue in cheek at first, but glad we pushed forward with it. And now we have pies and sandwiches and all this kind of stuff. And we've had conversations in recent days about even expanding it out further to see what's going on and how's it going. So, uh, yeah, it's, it was a, they came to the table being like, we want everything in the world uh, because there is so much uh, iconic visuals that come from a diner. So to only pick one or two would have been a travesty. So I, I have a feeling that this is not a one-year thing. This is a multi-year thing. And the good news is we have a lot of runway to still do some fun things with it. Uh, the wide array of logos that are so good for the Jersey Diners uh is the thing that stood out like ordinarily we'll see an alternate identity and it's there's one logo and you're like oh that's the money logo every one of these logos is so good and you don't have to speak to this specifically with the jersey diners because i don't want to tip anything if this is the plan but you kind of get the opportunity now especially with a little bit more runway with life somewhat being normal these days after that three years like you mentioned where if you design a suite of logos like this 
in theory, you've got four or five years now where, okay, this year the coffee cup is the main thing. Next year, it's the happy waitress. The year after that, it's the state next. Does that play into kind of coming up with some of these identities where it's, okay, well, yeah, we can do this for year number one. And then year number two, we could focus on this element and all that. Yeah, I think the way I set it up, at least as of late, is a project is the primary logo is is neutral. All right. It's a coffee mug. Everybody gets it. It has diner qualities and retro qualities. But the secondary logos is where you get really, really local so that. All right. Now it's it's pancakes, but it's baseball. It's definitely a New Jersey steak. It's all these kind of things. So I, I think that the first time people see it, you just want to sell nationwide, get the name out. Because once you have 100 people that buy that hat and you come out with a very localized hat, maybe two years, the chances of them coming back and be like, well, I need to add this to the collection now grow increasingly. So uh, that's kind of the formula that's been working out really, really well with the teams that I've been kind of dealing with of get people to know you so that they can come back and buy again when, when you kind of update and do things more. But again, it's just all a matter of not you know, making sure it's authentic, that it feels like the people that are involved kind of had the inside track or the inside knowledge of it, and they feel really connected to it. Uh, I gotta say one of my favorites is the coffee pot. Uh, and one thing that I did not realize that somebody pointed out to me that I found very interesting is that the lid on the coffee pot is the orange decaf indicator. Yeah. Instead of the cat. Is that just a color contrast thing? What's the thought? Like there are so many layers to all of these logos that like the average person looks at and probably doesn't think of. But having that pointed out to me, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh I wouldn't be surprised if there's a nod to, let's say, a little death to decaf type of vibe going on at some point in the future. So <laughs> there will be there will be a coffee pot that is for the caffeinated junkies like myself. But uh, there also is something for everybody. And, and so it, it's a nice pop of orange color and uh it will be used in the appropriate manner uh, in the future i very much need death to decaf on the t-shirt when you <laughs> launch the caffeinated coffee pod uh because that is fantastic um ryan this is the the reaction to this one has been so good what's been uh and it doesn't just have to be the jersey diners uh you know i know you've got uh some of your work is in the national baseball hall of fame with uh you know previous identities you've gotten to do what's been some of the coolest reaction that you've gotten to things that you've done over the years Anytime somebody's dumb enough to get one of my logos tattooed on them, that usually is pretty, pretty far up there where all of a sudden I'll get a text message from a team being like somebody came by the ballpark, the arena, look at their leg. And you're like, that's awesome. But that's who, amazing. how, what bet did you lose? And how did I somehow <laughs> become a part of it? But, uh, but yeah, it's just also the stories. Um, I remember when the mariachis dropped, I had somebody message me that said, you know, my grandfather and great, great grandfather were mariachis. And when I saw that being a sports fan, it just hit in a different way. And I almost got emotional over it that I can actually wear a hat that I have some family connection to. So you always hear those kind of stories of, um, hey, this happened and this and it's really it's really awesome. And it, it kind of filters out the negativity that you will i'll never drop anything that will be 100 universally loved there's somebody that's going to critique it one way or another but those stories that kind of trickle in where you can tell there is an emotional connection beyond it just being a local team uh it is just it's really amazing and it makes the work kind of all all worth it 
Well, Ryan's I'm going to get death to decaf uh, tattooed on me. I just want you to know. <laughs> well, that's, 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 that's what I'm doing. That's what I was about to say. Tyler, Sam, and I are headed to the tattoo parlor as soon as this uh, interview is over. We'll each pick one of your works to get tattooed um, on a TBD body part. <laughs> <laughs> Vote now. <let's laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so we'll keep you updated on all that. But uh, in the meantime, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show before the show podcast, explaining uh, who you are, what you do, and looking forward to seeing more of your logo design work in the future. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, guys. Well, huge thanks uh, to Ryan Foos. That was such a fun conversation. And uh, you can learn more about Ryan's designs at foosersports.com. Uh, awesome work from him. And uh, with that, we pivot to a collection of guys who are going to be wearing a lot of Ryan's designs in 2024 and beyond. How do you like that segue, Sam? Professional at this podcasting game. The top 100 prospects list is out now from MLB Pipeline last week. You may have seen... Sam Dykstra himself uh, on the television airwaves on MLB Network uh, at the unveiling of the top 100 prospects. First off, we didn't really get a chance to talk a ton about that uh, because we didn't want to spoil anything. How was it, buddy? Yeah, so that that was a lot of fun. Um, I I did some digital-only segments, so they're only available on MLB.com, but I was on the MLB Network set um, with my colleagues Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo and Greg Amsinger helped lead our conversation. Uh, just a lot of fun to see that thing behind the scenes. And uh, one thing I want to shout out all, all of those guys who worked on that, as well as Dan O'Dowd, who did the network show, uh, because everything you saw on TV was done in one take. Just incredibly professional. Uh, these guys really know what they're talking about, who they're talking about. Uh, it was all really, really buttoned up. Um, and it was fun to see our number one overall prospect appear on the show. And that was drum roll, but you probably already know it. Jackson Holiday. Jackson Holiday, indeed. Uh, I also, uh, my wife, Beth, who you know well, you were at our wedding. Uh, Beth said, uh, Whoa, Sam was on this show. She saw your post on Instagram. And I said, Yeah. And she said, With this graphic, it looks like he is Tampa Bay Rays prospect number 58, Xavier Isaac. Because the the screenshot that you posted, you were talking about Xavier Isaac, so they had his bio info. But it kind of looks like you have you considered just showing up to Ray's camp and being like showing that picture and be like, "Can I? This is I'm. Where do I need to report?" Uh I know some people at Ray's camp, and they would not believe me for a second. They also know who Xavier Isaac Dang is. I could confuse. And let me just say, uh, Xavier Isaac, a very, very, very strong human. Uh, and yeah, I I think he would be upset if I was trying to pull off myself as him so well i just uh, i spent the entire month of january working out uh i worked out 27 days in the month of january and according to my smart scale i somehow lost muscle mass so i'm the opposite of whatever xavier isaac is um so let's talk about this new top 100 here sam um first off i just want you to give me like if you had to break down the 2024 top 100 in terms of storylines you know things that we've seen where it's like oh man we've got a ton of you know college pitchers in the top 10 or we've got a glut of good infielders or whatever it is what do you feel like there is a theme to the 2024 class in the top 100 yeah i I think there there are a couple of them um starting with just the amount of draft guys we have in this top 100, there are 18, I believe, from the class of 2023, uh, headlined by number one overall pick, Paul Skeens. We have it number three overall. But you look at that draft class, and we were all saying, coming out of it, going into it even, it was one of the most loaded draft classes in recent memory. 
and I think a big part of that, and this is something to always underline when we're talking about a 2023 draft class, it, the juniors in that class were eligible as high schoolers for the 2020 draft that was shortened to five rounds. So not as many high schoolers got picked in 2020. A lot more went to college. A lot of them got really, really good. Talking about Paul Skeens, uh, Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford. Those guys got exceptionally good. All three of them were in the SEC. And then they were in this draft class that was deeper. And then you look at the high schoolers. The high schoolers were pretty good, too. You look at Max Clark, Walker Jenkins. Those guys would have been candidates to go number one overall in pretty much any other year. Unfortunately, they had to deal with these three SEC behemoths in front of them. Um, so it was as deep a draft class as I've ever seen. I've been doing this job since 2012. Uh, the top of the draft, Paul Skeens, you know, we were saying on the show and in other places, he might be the most talented pitching prospect to come out of college since Steven Strasburg. Uh, so when all of a sudden we're throwing that around and you've got two talented hitters in Langford and Cruz, uh, it was a really, really special class. Some other guys even further down the list, like Aiden Miller, got a lot of support to get on this despite being drafted in the back half of the first round because he wasn't really healthy as a senior. He had a broken hamate bone. As he started to recover from that, looked really, really good in that Philly system, so there was a lot of support to push him up. Colt Emerson of the Seattle Mariners system, uh, somebody with a lot of serious helium, showed a really special bat in a short pro ball sample, um, but a lot of evaluators we talked to were like, you need to get Colt Emerson on this list. Even if he didn't pop leading into the drafts, he's popping now. So even if there are a lot of draft guys on this list now, there could easily be more uh, as these guys develop and and enter their first full season. So that's, that's the first thing that stands out to me. I think the second is just a lack of arms in the top 20. Paul Skeens is our only uh, pitching prospect ranked in the, the top 20. The next guy after him is Kyle Harrison at number 22. And I think that just kind of speaks to where we are in terms of the game right now. Uh, starting pitchers aren't going as deep into games anymore. They're not necessarily as valuable as they used to be because uh, you don't have those you know guys going seven, eight innings or racking up 250 innings in a season. And the list kind of reflects that, right? And it also is a sign of pitchers are getting hurt more now maybe. Um so you have guys like Jackson Job and Ricky Tiedemann, who I think, if they're healthy, are top 15 prospects in the game. But Jackson Job had spine inflammation the first half of last year. Ricky Tiedemann had shoulder and biceps issues that limited him throughout the year. Both of those guys finished 2023 healthy and have really special stuff. You could especially put Andrew Job. Painter in that conversation, too. Andrew Painter also, 100%. That's a great call, Tyler. Uh, somebody who had elbow issues last year was our top pitching prospect going into 2023. Had elbow issues, finally underwent Tommy Johnny John surgery in the second half of the year and is now probably going to be out for all of 2024 as well. Maybe he comes back in the, the second half of the season. We'll have to see. But yeah, it's just a lot of these arms who are talented, the shine's a little bit off of them because they aren't pitching as much or... You know, you you just prefer everyday players, guys who will be playing every day, who have a much better chance of getting 600 plate appearances. That's not being affected as much by the modern game. It's not like we're seeing guys play five innings and then uh, substitutes coming in for the last four. Um, so it's just interesting to see the, the list evolve in that way. And the other one I'll throw out real quick is just there are a lot of 2024 ETAs on the list. I think there are 51 
of our top 100 are guys we expect to see the majors this year. Some of them have already seen the majors. Uh, technically, we have to put their ETA as 2024, even though they arrived in 2023. Guys like Evan Carter, uh, obviously. But, uh, I, you know, this list could look very, very different this time next year because – it's it feels like right now Jackson Holiday is going to probably graduate. Uh, Junior Caminero is probably going to graduate. Evan Carter, even Wyatt Langford could graduate. Dylan Cruz could graduate. Paul Skeens. Like it's going to be a really interesting debate this time next year. Who's the number one overall prospect? Because a lot of these top names are probably going to come off the list. Right now, who's your odds on favor to be midseason number one? Ooh, midseason. That's a that's a good question because it, I think the and we've talked about this before. Like I think Jackson Holiday has a decent chance to make the opening day roster yeah, for Baltimore. Yeah, Not like above fifty percent, but he's it has to be part of the conversation because of the prospect promotion incentives. And again, Baltimore knows what it has in Jackson Holiday. Not only that, they've got a new ownership group. They've got a lot of promise for the first time in a long time. I mean, the last couple of seasons obviously have been exciting in Baltimore, but this feels like, especially if you're taking over as a new owner, you want to inject some new enthusiasm into a, a city that's already, you know, very much rallying behind your team. Jackson Holiday goes out and blows the doors off in spring training. You're going to be very hard pressed to keep him off of that roster. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see how that's going to go, but Jackson Churio signed his extension this year. So he's right. not quite a lock to be opening day center fielder, but more or less a lock. Let's be honest. Uh, Junior Caminero, even though there's not a direct route to Tampa Bay for him right now, I've always said he's a guy the Rays should make room for. So I bet he's going to be graduated by the first half. Evan Carter is probably going to be gone. I expect Wyatt Langford to be gone as well. Um, I think there's some people who think the Nats are going to keep Dylan Cruz down. I don't agree with that. I think he's just too good of a hitter uh, to keep down for too long. And the Nats really need to kind of turn that corner now and, and start showing fans like we have good prospects and they are basically ready. So Dylan Cruz, James Wood, those guys are going to be competing for spots in the major leagues in the first half. I think, I think the debate is probably going to be Ethan solace versus Colson Montgomery versus Walker Jenkins. Um, Ethan Salas, you know, was our breakout prospect of the year last year, signed with the Padres, uh, made double A at 17. I don't want to get too wrapped up in that double A conversation because the Padres always push their guys aggressively, but he was just so advanced defensively. Like it's, I feel like that's something that usually comes on later for catchers because you have to learn how to frame. You have to learn how to work with pitchers. That only comes with experience. Ethan Salas was catching major leaguers last spring. Like they had him on the major league side a little bit in spring training and guys came wow came away wowed by how well he was sticking it, how well he was moving behind the plate. His arm is really good as well. I, I don't see a first half uh, debut happening. I don't even see a debut happening this year necessarily. I, I bet he opens at high A Fort Wayne. Um, but if he does everything he's capable of and continues to be plus defensively, he'll be right in that conversation. Colson Montgomery gets Corey Seager comparisons as a big shortstop who can hit for average and power. Uh, from the left side, he's even said like he's aware of that. He embraces it. Uh, and Walker Jenkins, you know, last year's pick for the Minnesota Twins at fifth overall, just seems like a, an absolute tool shed at six foot three, um, plus hit, plus power, above average running ability, can really throw the ball. Just has all those pieces you're looking for in a potential five tool outfielder. I mean, Jackson Churio is kind of that uh, already, and he's at number two. 
Jackson Churio doesn't throw the ball as well as Walker Jenkins does, um, but he's already shown that ability to hit for power and show a lot of speed uh, in center field. Walker Jenkins could maybe be that guy. He's not as fast as Churio. The power isn't playing as well as Churio's has to this point, but Jenkins has all the boxes ticked uh, to be a number one guy, maybe by midseason, maybe by this time next year. Who is the most um, contentious prospect uh, in terms of maybe where you were, where Jim Cowles was, where Jonathan Mayo was? And not to say that it takes anything away from this prospect or these prospects, but it always seems like in evaluating talent, uh, there are always one or two or more guys who it's just like people are all over the map on because you just can't pin down who they are as of yet. Yeah, uh, a few I'll I'll throw out real quick. Um, Skeens, you know, Skeens at number three is very aggressive. And I, and I totally understand that. Um, you know, he was somebody when I was ranking guys, I, I might've had below some of those bats from the same draft. Um, but you know, Jim and Jonathan covered the draft as well as anybody in baseball. They are, they are always have their ears to the ground. They're hearing what guys are saying about these, these draft prospects. And they were super excited about Paul Skeens. You know, we saw him a little bit last year in the pirate system, but you know, it, it what I was saying before about how the game is evolving in terms of pitching and there aren't that many great starting pitchers. Paul Skeens can be that he really can't like, we're talking about like Garrett Cole style starting pitcher. Uh, that is his type of projection. And if he's going to stick out head and shoulders above all other pitchers, you know, you got to give him credit for that. Um, so that's why he ended up at number three, Evan Carter versus Wyatt Langford was a debate. We had a lot of behind the scenes. I think Wyatt Langford hits the ball harder than Evan Carter. I think Evan Carter is faster. I think he is more likely to play center field. And guess what? He already has a World Series title. Like, guy could retire tomorrow. He's a World Series champion. and was batting three-hole for a World Series champion. It's just tough to argue when that floor is already so high for Evan Carter. We lean that way. We probably are going a little too safe on that. But, again, we had people in our mentions being like, Evan Carter's already, already won a World Series. How can he not be number one? Um, so that happened. The one who I think was toughest for me was Jacob Mizorowski of the Milwaukee Brewers. Mizorowski, pitch for pitch, might be just as good as Paul Skeens. Um, the fastball is in the triple digits. The slider is absolutely disgusting. He yanks that thing and it makes a hard left turn he makes guys look silly he has a curveball that can look really good he has a shorter cutter if he needs to command a little bit better he doesn't really need his changeup, but that's something that could come along it's just really really good stuff and it looks really good problem is the guy doesn't hit the strike zone very often uh he can get chase because the, that slider can really fool guys and that fastball explodes up in the zone he's got pitches moving every different which way that's kind of to his detriment um, he struck, I think he walked 40 plus guys in 70 plus innings last year. I'll get the exact number here in a second, but the command isn't stellar. And, you know, you can argue that yes, he was starting out his first full season. That's something that's going to have to build up. It was 42 walks in 71 in the third innings, by the way. Um, but I know some evaluators out there who think he's a reliever, a really, really good reliever. And the comp I would use is that he's a right-handed Josh Hader. And we just saw Josh Hader sign a massive deal with the Astros. So there is value in being a right-handed version of Josh Hader. Um, but where do you rank a guy like that? We put him at number 33 because if he stays as a starter, if those command tweaks happen and he's just average control, it's a potential number two starter in the big leagues uh, and could happen very quickly. Because in terms of 
quality of stuff, he doesn't need to do anything else. He doesn't need to add velo, doesn't need to add, add break to the slider. He just needs to find a way to throw it to the spot more consistently. Um, so we could, you know, be talking five years from now and be like, how is Misarowski not a top 10 prospect in the game when we did this? We could be talking five years from now and being like, oh man, all the signs were there. The control wasn't good. You know, he he didn't deserve that high. So we kind of went for the middle spot uh, between his ceiling and his floor, but I think both could be really exciting for Jacob Misarowski. All right, Sam, as far as team-wide rankings go, there are uh, franchises like the Orioles right now, the Cubs, who have uh, an absurd amount of top 100 talent. And then there are teams like the Astros. The Houston Astros do not have a single top 100 prospect. Is there a team that you think would be surprising to the average fan in either their strength or maybe their comparative weakness right now? I know there was a question in the story on Pipeline about uh, when is the the next Astros top 100 prospect going to arrive. Uh, it's probably not that far off, but um, you know, people would probably be surprised given the strength of the Houston Astros in recent years built largely on prospect drafting development and graduation that they don't have much of that top end talent right now. Who stands out in terms of the strength and maybe an eyebrow raiser and like, Oh, there's not a lot with that team. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you look at the Astros, right? Because what did they do last year uh, that, like actually depleted their farm system a little bit. It was that Justin Verlander trade with the Mets and the Mets sent money with Justin Verlander to get better prospects. Those were Drew Gilbert and Ryan Clifford who are now ranked number 53 and number 97 overall on our top 100. So the Astros do a good job of developing. I got to say, and Jacob Melton just missed our list, but was somebody in conversation at the very least. So would it surprise me if somebody breaks onto this list eventually from Houston? No, not at all. Um, they just traded those guys for, you know, one of the best right-handed pitchers of his generation last year, even if he was aging. Uh, and it seemed like that we'll see how Gilbert and Clifford come along, but that might be a trade that works out well for both sides. In terms of teams that I think might surprise people, I think this might be surprising to people because, you know, we do our farm system rankings every year and the Orioles continue to rank at the top. And, you know, we haven't voted on what our farm system rankings are going to be coming up, but it's not a spoiler to say the Orioles are going to be top three again and maybe number one again. Uh, but they're actually second in terms of most top 100 prospects this year to a team you already mentioned, Tyler, the Cubs. The Cubs have seven top 100 prospects. I think that really snuck up on people on like how good the Cubs have been in terms of developing the guys they have, but also going out and getting players. You know, they, you look at the seven who are in their top 100. Pete Crow Armstrong, acquired by by the Cubs from the Mets. Cade uh, Horton was their first round pick in 2022. Owen Casey, acquired from the Padres. Michael Bush was acquired just this offseason from the Dodgers because the Cubs looked at their first base situation and said, we need a first baseman. Michael Bush needed to get traded somewhere, so they found a loophole there, giving up Jackson Ferris, who's just off our top 100, but... They can gain another top 100 type Michael Bush at number 51. Matt Shaw has a ton of helium. He was a, their first round pick last year. Kevin Alcantara was picked up from the Yankees a few years ago. And James Triantos, I believe, was a second round pick of theirs uh, in 2021. Yeah, 56th overall. So they've been a good, done a good job of just identifying these types and getting them into the system. In some cases, we haven't seen Bush in the system yet, but allowing Pete Crow Armstrong to live up to his ceiling. Uh, you know, there's some talk about like, would the Cubs bring back Cody Bellinger? 
I think part of the reason why they're thinking about maybe not spending the moon for Cody Bellinger is Pete Crow Armstrong is there and would win a gold glove if he was in the majors for a full season, like tomorrow. And that glove certainly elevates his, his floor. Kate Horton. I know there are some people out there who think he's the best pitching prospect in baseball, um, which is, is a little bit of a stretch for me, but still, you know, when they drafted him out of Oklahoma, he was still kind of coming back and had shown really special stuff in the, in the uh, NCAA postseason, but wasn't a slam dunk pick by any means. And they've turned him into who we think is the 26th best prospect in baseball. So I think the Cubs have kind of snuck up on people by the the people they've picked up because it's not been a full rebuild. We don't think about them in the way we used to think about the Orioles of like, hey, they really need to start picking these guys up and all the attention is on the minor leagues. It hasn't been quite that on the north side of Chicago, but you look at where they are now and it's certainly one of the most exciting systems in all, all of the game. All right, Sam, if there was one more storyline that you thought was important for people to know about or follow from this year's top 100, uh, what would it be? Ooh, one more storyline from all this. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I always go back to, right. Like we set these at a certain time and we set them in the off season. And so it's not like when we do it in mid season, where we set the list and a week later, something could happen. You know, nobody's playing ball yet. So we set this for how we think it's going to be. And it's, we're not going to be moving guys up and down that much until spring training starts. And even then it's a small sample. I think the thing to look at is like, who can you identify from this list? And I know everybody's going to have their opinions on it. Like who has helium? Who's going to jump next? Who's going to be that guy who, you know, Jackson holiday wasn't, a guarantee to be number one overall when we had this conversation a year ago. Is there anybody on this list who could be that type? I mean, you look at somebody like Samuel Basayo, another Orioles prospect, uh, who's a catcher slash first baseman. I have some questions about the defense, but all the indicators on offense were that th- that guy has a chance to be really special. How high can he go this year? He's only 19 years old. I talked about Colt Emerson before. Um, you know, he's in the eighties right now, but I could easily see jumping 50, 60 spots if the bat holds up over a first full season. One guy I'm going to be keeping a close eye on is Dylan Lesko, of uh, the San Diego Padres has really, really great stuff. Uh, was the 15th overall pick in 2022. The changeup might be the best in minor league baseball. It's like right there in conversation with Drew Thorpe, who's also in the Padres organization for, I think best in the game, at least at the lower levels. Uh, and he's, Showed sharpness in you know in the quality of stuff as he came back last year, but he was still coming back off Tommy John. The he walked twenty two batters in 30, 33 innings, so the command is still coming back. San Diego officials have told me they're looking to get him to hundred innings this year. If he gets to hundred innings, he could strike out one hundred fifty batters. I feel like no no problem. Um, and if that happens, then we're talking about Dylan Lesko and the way that we were talking about like Andrew Painter a year ago, and that's. Dylan Lesko will already have Tommy John in his past. So there are some guys who like we have settled on here just because we have to. It has to be a snapshot, but I can't wait to see who who jumps up next. And, and those are just some of those guys I'm, I'm keeping an eye on. You can check out the new Top 100 at MLB Pipeline and uh, read all of the pieces from Sam and from Jonathan and Jim and everybody else. And uh, give us your thoughts as well on the new Top 100 for this 2024 season. Coming up, Josh Jackson stops by with Ghost of the Miners, and then we're back to wrap it up next.
this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once really tried to win a circuit championship. The others never showed up for even a blip. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Henderson Plumbers. B. The Anderson Electricians. C. The Jefferson Janitors. What did you choose? You've got the power if you picked B, the Anderson Electricians, who lit up the diamond hopes of Anderson, South Carolina, for parts of six seasons in the early 20th century. The seat of an eponymous county up in the northwest corner of the state, Anderson became known as South Carolina's Electric City in the 1890s, thanks to a hydropower plant on the Rocky River. Our electricians got their start in the opening year of a new South Carolina league, 1907, but failed to spark much beyond a juicy scandal that summer. The details of the dispute that erupted between the league's teams midseason are tough to trace through historical haze, but the electricians evidently felt there was some faulty wiring in the circuit's finances, as Anderson and Greenville tried to boot out the relatively distant clubs of Sumter and Orangeburg. The other teams in the league pointed out that Sumter and Orangeburg always lived up to their promise of paying visiting clubs $50 per game and refused. Threats ensued. The Orangeburg Times and Democrat noted, The idea of Greenville going into the South Atlantic League is enough to make a horse laugh. And Greenville and Anderson must have gone into baseball to make money. At least we would judge so from the way they squeal about losing a little money to keep the league up. Such zingers zapped the electricians, who, along with the Greenville team, withdrew from the loop by August. But Anderson's team, Ander fans, Ander rival-slash-ally Greenville team, were back in the game with the formation of the Carolina Association in 08. That year, the electricians can be forgiven for lacking league-winning pep, as Greenville got a real charge from an unshot outfielder named Joe Jackson. Although Anderson was behind for most of its tenure, the electricians had no trouble keeping current in 1912. <laughs> Winning the pennant with a 66-44 record and getting a circuit-best 191 strikeouts from hurler Paul Fittery, who fittered up to the major leagues in a couple years. But the Carolina Association itself fittered out over the following offseason, with clubs announcing their withdrawal over the winter months. By January of 1913, the whole league was gone. And that's how the Anderson electricians were unplugged. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these players couldn't get enough in the minors of yesteryear? A. Sailor Insatiable B. Timmy Tentims C. Joseph Moore Joseph Want to know the answer? Get rapacious. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is calling me a liar, and I've got to bash him over the head with one of my many Sexiest Man Alive awards.
quietly saying goodbye on this week's episode of the show before the show podcast so as to not get yelled at by one Sam Dykstra. Um, gents, what's uh, we're less than two weeks away now from pitchers and catchers reporting. What's the vibe around uh, HQ these days? I know, you know, players have been filtering through. Uh, Ronald Lacuna Jr. was there, what, last week? There's There's all kinds of excitement. Yeah, he was just here earlier this week, as was Luis Angel Cunha, right. uh, Mets prospect, and his brother. Uh, they were in this very studio, in fact. They might have been sitting in these very seats. They're uh, under the desk they're right under now. They're under the desk right now. <laughs> this uh, is the start of a very weird horror film. Yeah. Uh, no, it's 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 got that vibe right now of everybody just like, we need to, the, the pace is picking up. You know, it's it's not just... All right, we're in the offseason now. You can see everything turning the corner towards the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League. And, you know, the Padres and Dodgers are starting a little bit easier, earlier this year because they're going off to South Korea as part of the Korea series. Um, so, you know, we'll get pitchers and catchers and position players showing up to Arizona a little earlier than normal. Uh, I'm already excited. I'm talking to, you know, uh, people here about my spring training report dates. My own ones, my own participation in spring breakout, which we've talked about before, and that new initiative that'll be taking place from the 14th to the 17th uh, in March. So lots of things are, are coming, but it's got that kind of buzz of excitement as everybody, like I said, turns that corner in the offseason. All right, Ben, what about you? What do you got going on? Well, I'm just plugging away. Um, you know, sometimes free food shows up in the uh, little kitchen area, which is nice. Um, that's a big topic of conversation. I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I clean my closet and wearing some different shirts to the office. New so, or like rediscovered old shirts? Kind of rediscovered old ones. Okay. Yeah. That's um, so that's been nice. Um, that's about all that's going on for me. Yeah. No, Sam, I mean, it's not all about the say? work stuff. Yeah. What can you say? It's, you know, we're in February and, uh, I think as this podcast uh, episode is illustrated, there's always stuff to do, always stuff to talk about. We're seeing a lot of announcements, obviously at this point, uh, regarding promo schedules, new alternate identities, uh, new ballpark renovations being unveiled, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there's, there's always something and, you know, we've, we've all, we're content Kings, so it doesn't really matter what time of year it is. We've got that content for you delivered royally through a variety of mediums. That is the truth. Uh, and again, if you want to get in touch, podcast at MILB.com. And uh, that'll do it. Big thanks to Josh Jackson for stopping by with Ghost of the Miners. And uh, for Sam Dykstra, Benjamin Hill, and all the rest, my name is hey, Tyler. Tyler, can you oh, oh, oh. Can you say goodbye to Jim Olander as well? Uh, and a huge, I just Googled Jim Olander, the, the voice of the Sioux Falls Stampede, which is a uh, minor league hockey team is named Jim Olander, not the same guy. Uh, and a big, uh, big goodbye to Jim Olander. I wish I knew who the PA guy was back in the day at Mile High Stadium. I might need to look that up. See who that was. See if I can get in touch. Be like, you know what Jim Olander is up to these days? A Google search revealed that he was a scout for the Tigers for some time. I don't believe that he is still in that role. But uh, anybody knows the whereabouts of Jim Olander. Maybe we can bring him on. Talk about that uh, the the AAA Classic in 1991. The, the stories that are driving the ratings on the show before the show. <laughs> All right, for everybody in Minor League Baseball's official podcast, my name is Tyler Mon. We'll catch you next week.